We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've gotten into some interesting stuff. We've been in this series called Alternate Reality. What we're looking at is getting a basis point of where we are. And the definition of the word reality is the world or state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And as a born-again believer, spirit-filled, follower of Christ, disciple of Jesus, we are beginning to realize that the world that you and I operate in, the world that we see, should be the spiritual one and not the carnal one, the world around us. We are to be separated from this world. And what we're finding out as we get into this, that much of the church today is not. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that they're negative. Because when we think carnal, we often think immoral. And that's not accurate. It can be accurate, but it's not an all-encompassing definition of it. Just because they're doing uh, moral things does not mean that they are spiritually minded. And that's what you and I have to be. I had to have this discussion with the last church that I was at with many of the parents. They had a big homeschool culture there. And they had some of the best-behaved children you'll ever meet. And part of that is because they never left the house, so they couldn't get in trouble, right? But it was like these kids, they could tell you they would have these Bible uh, discussions, not discussions, competitions, Bible competition where they have to memorize like sections of scripture, which is valuable, and they would go through and they'd have to like, they would, I don't know, they did test and things and it was content, I don't know how it all worked. Um, I did not attend any of those events, just so in case you were wondering. But with these young people who are so well behaved, I had to explain to the parents that there is a difference between morality and spirituality. Because they do not receive the righteousness of God in Christ through osmosis from mom and dad. And being able to memorize large chunks of scripture is great, but if you don't know what it says, who cares? I mean, it's like memorizing the encyclopedia. I don't know where that would come in handy, Adam. Where did that come in handy? It doesn't. But, but I mean, it's like, there's value in it. Don't misunderstand me. But it's like when, when, when I would ask them questions pertaining to the passage which they had memorized. And I'm telling you, when I say passages, I mean many, many chapters. Like the last one I recall was through the book of Acts. And I asked them a very simple question found inside the text that they had just memorized and recited. And they could not answer the question. That was concerning to me. The other concerning part is because kids were being well-behaved, their mom and dad assumed that they were on the right track spiritually. And it's a mistake that we all make. Because what do you hear, even in the world, people who would not be a part of the church, okay, is that, well, they're a good person. Okay, super. What does that have to do with anything? No different than when you hear something, perhaps a, a minister or something like that, that's going through a rough patch and has made some poor decisions. Their response is, Well, they are a good person. It's like, what does that have to do with anything if they're preaching heresy? In John chapter 17, verse 13, it says, I now uh, come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. We see Jesus. Was he part of the world? No. He was in it, but he was not of it. And he says, my disciples are in the same way. I'm sending them into the world as you have sent me. Jesus being the agent of the Father, representative of God on earth, now he sends his disciples as representatives of him. 
In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says that I know him and he does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So we're doing and saying the things of Jesus. When we say that I know Jesus, that is a bold declaration. Imagine at the time of Christ walking on the earth, okay, where you could go around and you would name drop and be like, hey, I know Jesus. That would carry a lot of weight with some folks, not so much with others. But what you saw happening is you said, well, I am of Paul, I am of Barnabas. You see these other things that are going on. Why are they doing that? Because they were disciples of that individual. And as a disciple of that individual, your being there carried weight because you were trained under the tutelage of whomever it was. There were hundreds of rabbis. What made Jesus unique? Him being the son of God. But Jesus didn't come to this earth as God. He came to this earth as man. We see in Luke chapter 2 and verse 51, and I know we, we recite this often, we go through these again, but we always have to build upon what we left off with. Verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. God does not grow in wisdom, God does not grow in stature, and God does not grow in favor with himself. Jesus was a man on the earth, so what he did, we can do. He grew in his understanding of who he was. He grew in his understanding of what the will of his father was. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the authority that had been given to him. And all of this was through his growth and knowledge of the scripture. Remember, prior to what we just read in Luke 2, he's sitting there, he's asking questions. He's in the temple. It's right after Passover. He's asking questions. He would read all of these stories, and we've gone through these, about the 12 spies and these different groups, and the David and Goliath, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it was always a matter of what I see in front of me versus what God had said. Very few are moved by what God has said. Most of us are moved by what we see. We see it in Scripture, all over. What God said, what I see. And there was this overarching theme that has been throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it's the term sojourners. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. And as we've gone through, we've looked at this sojourner term, is that this is somebody who is a representative, but is not of the land. But wherever they came from, they go into that land carrying the authority of the one in whom they represent. Every single time. Well, according to Peter, that we are sojourners. We are agents of Christ Jesus. His disciples were. Well, how many disciples did Jesus have? Don't say 12. Fail the test. He had hundreds of thousands of them. He selected 12 out of that group. Go read Luke very carefully. Around chapter 6 or 7. I don't remember exactly where it is. It talks about it of all the disciples. He chose the 12 as his apostles. He picked them as different. These were agents of Christ. 
as Jesus was an agent of the Father. You and I are agents of Christ as he was an agent of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 24, this is most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. And most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. But do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And as we've shown time and time again, he says, I didn't do this of me. What I hear, I say. What he does, what I saw him do, I do. He is a representative of the Father in, in a Hebrew text. It's the Shaliach, which means an agent, a representative of him. And as we talked about this, we were beginning to look at what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did was very unique. He set himself apart. He, with the, the story of the paralytic, when they brought to him, and he says, your sins are forgiven you, and it causes an uproar. He said, well, which is easier? He said, did both, Right? In John chapter 5, he says, I can do nothing of myself as I hear I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. In John chapter 6, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. There's a theme. He's an agent. He's representing God. And in Luke chapter 2, as we just read, if you back up, we're going to skip down to verse 47. Because remember, mom and dad were looking for him frantically, couldn't find him. He's 12 years old. It says, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his father said to him, son, why have you done this to us? And he says, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they didn't understand the statement. Even as a young age, he recognized who his father was. That his father was looking for him, but he's got to be about his father's business. So either Jesus had a stroke, or he knows his plan. He knows his path. So if Jesus was an agent of the Father, then we must be an agent of Jesus, a representative. We see this in John chapter 20. I know this is a recap, verse 19. It says, the same day at evening, when being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands, his side, and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father sent me, I sent you. Now that's powerful. As Jesus was sent into this earth, he is now sending his 12 on a mission. And when he had said this, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Which is easier? Rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven? As a representative of the Father, he had the authority to do both. As a representative of Christ, we have the authority to do both. And don't misunderstand me. I am not saying we in and of ourselves have the ability to forgive sin. But what we do have is the ability to recognize when forgiveness is warranted. Because sins are not just washed away, they are repented of. The mechanism is in place of which one can become right with God. But it's not based off of what we do. It's a simple repentance. And this is where that idea that we've talked about loving somebody into the kingdom. 
where we're just going to be nice to them. We're going to accept them the way they are. And we just pray that God will get a hold of their heart. That's scary. Because that's not how it works. I know many people that have tried this. Tried this. There were churches built upon this idea. And most of them, when you ask them, well, how many people have you truly led to Christ? The answer is almost zero. Because they're never confronted with their sin. Why would you change? If God loves me just the way I am and has a perfect will for my life, why do I need to change? Jesus spent his entire ministry preparing the disciples to be his representative, to be his agent. And you and I as a born-again believer are the express image of Jesus on this earth. We've got to understand that. So now, with all of that in mind, we have to understand how deep this goes. Because there are passages of Scripture that we often read, we read too quickly. We don't take our time and meditate and chew on and be like, man, what does that say? And the reason we do that is because a lot of us have spent the better parts of our lives sitting in a church every single Sunday, maybe every single Wednesday, maybe on a Tuesday night, maybe on a Sunday evening as well. And you've heard a lot of stuff. But do you know, and this might come as a shock to you, not everything that is said is accurate? I know. You guys are questioning that right now, right? The thing is, is that you have good-intentioned people that mean well. But you know that that's true because what do we see in movies and, and things when it comes to the things of God? Well, what is an angel? Well, usually some woman with big wings. or It can be a guy. I mean, you've seen It's a Wonderful Life? That's the most jacked-up angel I've ever seen. You ever read the description of angels in Ezekiel? It didn't look like Clarence. Right? I mean, but that's the thing. And so we're so moved, and we don't even realize it. We're moved by our experiences of what we've heard, what we've read, all of this stuff. We never do what Acts 17, 11, it says, is to go back to the Scripture to see if what is said is true. And as a result of that, we just blindly swallow things. We hear things, we take things in, things that oftentimes match up with what we already previously believed. Confirmation bias. We're all terrible about it. Everybody is. Human beings as a, as a whole are. We do not like to be confronted with our wrongness. So I want to show you something today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because we're talking about communion, because we're going to take communion together today. But this is often read, and, and I was reading something a couple of weeks ago, some of the memoirs of John Lake, if you're familiar with him, he had an incredible healing ministry up in Spokane, Washington, started out in South Africa. And uh, something he said in here really got my mind going, because we've read this a million times, me included. And we often know what it means. So we're going to read his entirety, and we're going to begin to break down what is happening in here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, I received from the Lord. So this is Paul talking. So if you're wondering where this message came from, where did it come from? From the Lord, right? He had a confrontation with Jesus. Okay? That which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. To uh, This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what are we talking about here? What is this? It's the Passover meal, right? Y'all with me? Y'all awake? We need more coffee? More donuts? What do we need? But look at the result of this. Now watch what verse 27 on says, because this seems pretty heavy. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, for what reason? For all the things he talked about. Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Doesn't that seem a little over the top? That for us as our church, once a month we together, the last Sunday of every month, we do this together. And it seems to be, if we don't do it right, there's a result that that comes with that. Sickness and death. That seems a little heavy, doesn't it? For something that we have turned into a simple sacrament. Now, some churches will do it every Sunday. I've encouraged you to do it every day in your home with your family. And, and much like you, I don't do that either. Times I remember, times I don't. But the question is, why is it so heavy? Why are there consequences associated? And what on earth is going on? Because it can't be as simple as this. If it's as simple as this, that seems a little over the top, doesn't it? So what we need to do is we need to go back to the beginning and begin to question, like, well, what exactly was happening in the moment? Remember, Paul received this from the Lord. We know that the Lord Jesus acted this out. You can see it in the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't see it in John. And so what is going on here? Well, if this is the Passover, we need to go back and look at what the Passover was. In Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to go. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb should be without blemish. It has to be a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh of that on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its uh, legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remaining until morning, and what remains of it until morning you should burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. It will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now there's a lot going on here, but let's unpack this. What is happening? This is the last of the ten judgments. What are these judgments on? It just told us. The gods of Egypt. It's not against the Egyptians. Every one of those, as you begin to work this out and study this out, you will see that there is an Egyptian god associated with each and every judgment, from the Nile, the frogs, the lice, all that stuff. Okay? 
You can do that on your own time. We've talked about that stuff before. As he's getting ready to bring the people out, he sets up this very weird mechanism that will save their lives. Okay? Now, when you think of life-saving devices, you think of perhaps a bulletproof vest, maybe a parachute, a life jacket. You don't think of baby sheep. Right? This is weird. God does weird. Right? Remember Numbers 21 and the gold serpent on a hill? and if, Yeah, okay. God does weird. So there's something going on here. So let's break this down quickly. He, as the last judgment, he's getting ready to execute judgment on the firstborn. Remember that the Egyptian uh, believed that Pharaoh was God, thus the son of God was his firstborn son. Okay? There's the judgment coming. It's striking the entire land except those who follow this. Now, they had to bring the lamb on the 10th day. They would bring it in and would stay with them inside the house for four days. And they would begin to examine it and make sure that it is right. Now, as you guys know, this is all fulfilled by Christ. There's all that stuff in there. Again, we're not getting into all of that. I'm skipping over a lot of details. If you have questions, see me afterwards. So they're examining it. They're associating with the sheep. It's part of the family. And then on the 14th of Nisan, they go out and they kill it. Now, killing it's not enough. God says that you are to kill it and you are to consume it. But there is a step that has to be taken. It is the application of the blood. It is the blood of the lamb. And what do they have to do? It says to put it on your lintel and your doorpost, right? It's a picture like this is what we always see. Something along that. They would take hyssop, they would put it up there, they would paint it on. Um, basically that. If you read the King James and some of the other translations, it says you will strike the doorpost and the lintels. Now strike is a different word, Right? And if they were to strike it, again, it's just interesting to me, but if they were to strike it, it would look something like this, because as they would strike both of those, that blood would flow. But it was only the application of the blood that kept them from the judgment, and that's it. It wasn't as simple as eating the lamb. Didn't matter if you killed it. It mattered if you applied the blood. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's important. That's where the term Passover comes from and we know the rest of the story angel comes and he goes he passes over them so what on earth how does this associate with this because jesus makes a clear connection let's go back to first corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 says i received from the lord that i delivered you the lord jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you're thinking in your mind, what does this have to do with Passover? Well, as I, I gave you the details of it, and I have asked many people, we know what the blood is, right? They're in the Passover meal. It's called a Seder. It's the cup after supper. There are four cups in the Passover meal, okay? The third one is the cup immediately following the meal. It's called the cup of redemption. This is the cup that he is passing around. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. But the part about the bread, that's what always threw me. Because if we're connecting it 
to the Passover. We know the unleavened bread part. We know Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. What we don't know, as he said, this is my body that is broken for you. That's where it gets confusing. Because what connection does that have to the Passover? I can't find one. And here's the other part. I've talked to several Messianic Jews who grew up doing Passover. And I asked them, what's the connection of the body of Christ and the bread to the Passover? They don't know either. That makes me feel a little better. Okay, If you have a good answer, I'd love to hear it. So there's something that's going on here, and this is where I think we've missed it. Because we've read this so many times, we've heard it in our entire life, we don't take the time to ask the good questions. So understand what takes place. I read you at Exodus chapter 12. You also see in Leviticus where they talk about a little bit more detail of the different things that they are supposed to do at Passover. But do you know this? That as time passes, things get changed a little bit. And the Passover had been added too. Like there's an egg and a bone involved now. That was, none of that was there, okay? So what is going on here? Well, there were two Passover lambs every year. There was the Passover lamb that the family would consume. They would bring into their house on the 10th of Nisan, and then they would kill it. They didn't apply the blood anymore, but they would consume it with their families, the Seder meal, and they would go through all this stuff. And again, we've done Seder meals here. You've seen that, and if you haven't, again, we can, we can talk about that later. But then there was the Passover lamb that was given as a sacrifice for each family. So there's two different things that are going on. But in the meal, they would always have something called an off the, or excuse me, a masatosh. This is an example of one. They don't all look like this. I've shown you guys this before. And the bread was very specific. There are three layers inside of this masatosh, okay? And they'll tell you it represents the Trinity. I don't know if a Jewish mind, that's what it represents. I have no idea. But in the middle one is where they would keep the bread. And it would look something like this. And this bread was very specific. Now, square, round, a lot of it was homemade. Now it's mass-produced. It's so funny. You can buy this stuff at Walmart now, but it says not meant for Passover. Who else is buying this stuff? Have you ever tasted it? It's terrible. It's not even good dipping crackers. Like, it's terrible. So anyway, but there was very specific requirements of it. And the three requirements is, number one, it had to have no leaven in it. Leaven was always enigmatic of sin. They had to get the leaven out of the household. The other thing about the bread is that it had to be striped. And you can kind of see it here that it's got stripes forming. It was required. It was how they produced it. It had to have the stripes. And the last one is, and you can't see this, but you're going to take my word for it, is it had to be pierced. It had to have these little holes. And you can, you see the little holes there? Okay, so I'm not making this up. Okay, good. You want to try this? He doesn't know. And what would happen is at the Passover meals, they, they would break the bread into two pieces, Okay. One piece they would take here, it was called the afikoman, and they would put it in either this bag. Sometimes they would just wrap it in a napkin. This is fancy because they need stuff to sell to people, right? Like, you ever notice that there's a market for anointing oil? Isn't that interesting? Anointing oil from Israel, as if that oil is more... Anyway, sorry. We love capitalism. Go team. They would put this in the afikoman. They would set it aside. This would come into play later. We're not going to talk about that. But it's this part here. You see, Jesus makes a very specific statement. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And then he says the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. So they're partaking of the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. Now don't get too hung up on that. I know that sounds weird. There are some people that believe in something that this becomes the literal body or the literal blood of Christ, and they are re-sacrificing Jesus every time that they do this. That's not correct. So as they would partake of this, Jesus said that this is my body, this is my blood, this is of the new covenant, that's important, and as often as you do this, and you do it and remembers me, and then verse 26, it says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this is where it gets interesting, because we've got to understand the symbolism that's going on here, is that this bread is clearly representative of his body. We can see that it's pierced and it's striped and it's broken. But he says it's for you. What does that have to do with the Passover? Well, that's fascinating. And then you got the whole cup. And he says, this cup is the, my blood in the new covenant. So these two items are now proclaiming the Lord's death. Well, how are they doing that? We have to understand the symbolism that is going on. I want to show you some stuff about the cup. There are several verses. I picked a few. Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. What was in his hand? It's a cup. What kind of cup are we talking about? It's a judgment that's being poured out. Are they consuming it? Yeah, are they taking it into themselves? This judgment. Look at Job chapter 21. Verse 20 says, Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Look at Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, and you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. What do we see again? We see judgment being consumed. Now, are they all sitting around drinking from an actual cup? No. But we're seeing this played out here. There are tons of these. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. It says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Well, doesn't that sound like a great party? Verse 17, then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink. To whom the Lord has sent me, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. All the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all, and the kings of the coastland, which are across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Booz, and all who are the farthest corners. All the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert. All the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth. Also the king of Sheshik shall drink after them. Did he leave anybody out? There's a lot going on here. Therefore, verse 27, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. 
fall and rise no more, because the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from the ha- your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword on the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Are you picking up what's going on here? This cup in the hand of God is about a proclamation of judgment that they are drinking upon themselves. They are consuming the fury of God. We see it in two other places, though. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Then a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead and on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That doesn't sound fun. Look at chapter 16, verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Holy smokes. See, Jesus going as that Passover lamb, he gives to his disciples two things, to proclaim his death until he's come. Well, what's the result of his death. In other words, when you're consuming, when they consume the wine is what we just read in all these prophecies in these different parts. They're consuming the Lord's judgment. But who drinks the ultimate cup of redemption? Who drank the cup of judgment? Jesus did. So why is he handing this to them? Why is he saying, this is my body? This is my blood? It's the new covenant. You proclaim my death. There is no covenant where a death has not taken place. The testator must die. By partaking of this, they are now entering into the net result of his body being broken and his blood being shed. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 again. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, take, eat, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. By their actions and their lives, they proclaim the death of the Lord. Now with that death comes what? The resurrection. You see, think about everything that Jesus was doing as he's preparing his disciples, his followers, to say, okay, I'm leaving, but as the Father sent me, I send you. What authority did Jesus have that they didn't? The answer is none. What ability did Jesus have that they didn't? The answer is none. And so as all of these things were given to them, the last piece of this is right here in front of us. They are partaking in the death of Jesus. But Jesus is carrying the weight. You see, the Passover lamb was sacrificed on their behalf. Jesus laid down his life on their behalf. 
we're now consuming a part of this covenant being broken. So with that happens spiritually, you and I are going through something unique. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is who our life appears, then you also appear with Him in glory. Now that's interesting, because raised with Christ. You remember there were some people that, that were raised at Christ's death. They came out of the graves. You remember that? Is Paul writing to them and them only? I mean, if we're thinking just from a natural standpoint, that would be it, but it can't be. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we died and we were raised with Christ. What does this represent? The breaking of his body, the giving of his blood. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Well, wait a minute. When did we die to sin? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he, we're consuming the symbols of his work. There are consequences of that. Likewise is the key, like he just did, like he said. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are sound-minded, it is for you. But the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all die. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for, whom he, uh, for whom, him who died for them and rose again. What are they taking on? They're entering into this covenant. This is the new covenant and are you guys like, are you connecting the dots? I hope you are. Because I know this is a little different because we just kind of take this stuff for granted. But this, nothing that Jesus did and nothing that the Holy Spirit documented in Scripture is there for not importance. It is there for a reason. And we often, because we've read it so many times, we glaze over it and we're like, what is happening here? Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? We did not die physically. We weren't even on the planet. We weren't even thought of. Except maybe by God. 
So what's he talking about? When Jesus died, his disciples died with him. When his body was broken, it was for them. When that blood was shed, it was for them. They were with Jesus every single day for the three years of ministry. When that Passover lamb was brought into the home, can you imagine what your little kids would do? Oh, look how cute. Don't kill Fluffy. I'm not eating Fluffy, right? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, this wasn't just to create some sort of event that we do once in a while. He was explaining this to them. That for all these years since they were children, in their families every year, they would break this bread and they would consume it. They would take the bitter herbs and, and all the other stuff that was going on. And every year they would bring this lamb into their house. And they would kill it on the 14th day. And that night they'd eat. It's turned into a big party, much like what Christmas has become to us for Thanksgiving. We have tradition. It was tradition to them, most of which they didn't know. And if you've ever been through a Seder meal and you start seeing the, the pictures of Christ and redemption and all of that, it's so powerful. You question, like, how do they not see this? But Jesus is sitting there explaining to them. It's, it was first take and then eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. 1 Corinthians 11 again, verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in our lives. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So let's talk about this. What is going on here? There's a part of the Ten Commandments. It says you will not take the Lord's name in vain. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant. And what have we turned that into? Don't make God's name a part of a cuss word. It's great advice. That's not what it's talking about. You see, what would happen is that these people would come as an agent of God because Israel was an agent of God. They were God's representative on the earth. And when people looked at Israel, they were to see what happens when you follow Yahweh. They were to be an example to the entire world. And that when the world looked at them, they'd be like, oh my goodness, this is the real God. We're not just, we're following all these dumb idols that don't talk. We're making all these sacrifices. And yeah, we can get some weird stuff to happen. But they walked through uh, water and dry land. And they were enslaved. And now they're not. And now they come through conquering lands of giants they were to be God's example and so he said don't take my name in vain he's like don't claim representation of me if you don't live it that's literally what this means so what happens here is as we do this what are we proclaiming the Lord's death until he's come the new covenant 
He's giving this to his representatives. Those who eat in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. Let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Otherwise, the judgment for not discerning the Lord's body will come upon them. It's for this reason that they are weak and sick among you and sleep. If we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You see, the shedding of Jesus' blood and the breaking of his body was the consummation of this new covenant coming for you and I. And there were people that would proclaim that, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to do this. No, they weren't. The authority had been given to them. They could withhold this from somebody if they didn't see them as worthy, and you'll see that happen from time to time. Jesus' blood shed, his body broken, had real consequences. And these people were just arbitrarily, yeah, give it to me. Yeah, that's fine. You'll see they're arguing over, like, it tells them, like, go eat at home. If you're hungry, go eat at home. This is not what we're doing here. We've not taken the body and blood of Christ seriously enough. Because when we consume it, we are proclaiming his death. If we are his agents on this earth, we have to carry the fullness of that covenant with us. The forgiveness of sins. The, the power of the Holy Spirit, all of those things associated with what Jesus did, of what he gave to his disciples. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. So we're going to take this together. When it says to examine yourself, it's not sitting there and saying like, okay, did I sin this week? Did I do anything wrong? We're examining ourselves to say, am I in covenant with the Father? Because... We can't be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ because he willingly laid down his life. The only way we can be guilty of it is if we don't receive the free gift thereof. The guilt was put upon him. The judgment has now been stayed. You and I are now looked at through the lenses of Christ's work by the Father. Well, you can't enter boldly into the throne room without invitation. And he says it's an open door policy. We can't be guilty of it if we're born again. But if we're not, if we're not right with Christ, and this is just simply, this would not be a meal for us, but imagine at that time, and we're just arbitrarily going through this. That's the only way we're guilty of it. This, which is turned into a sacrament, is meant to be a proclamation of God's goodness. He sent his only begotten son to die a death that we deserve, that his body was broken for you and I, that by his stripes we may be healed. And his blood was poured out in that cup of redemption, the cup of which he took upon himself. He took the cup of wrath from God. Thank God. So together, let's take a moment. Let's just be grateful. Let's be so grateful about what he's done. See, it's not just the ability that God has given us. It's the responsibility to him. We've taken this for granted. We've taken his body for granted. We've taken his blood for granted in how we execute our lives and live our lives and do our lives and the things we say. We just take our time for granted. But like it or not, we're his representative. 
We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Father, we repent of not taking your word seriously. Because it's in your word that you've revealed all of this truth to us. And that we repent for not, not taking the time to fully dive in and to understand what is being said, Lord. But we are so grateful that we can walk in this new covenant. A covenant that for thousands of years, the prophets and all looked ahead, yearning for this time of the coming Messiah. And we just take that for granted. But now, Lord, you have provided for us, and we are so grateful that your body was broken for us. Lord, we receive the fullness of that, that by your stripes we are healed. Let's take the bread together. And Lord, when you handed them the cup of redemption, and they passed it around. And you said, this is the new covenant that's in my blood. It was your blood that was shed, not ours. It was a sinless lamb that was sacrificed. Because we couldn't qualify. But you took that on yourself. Lord, may we never forget that our righteousness comes from you. It's not based off of what we do. Not based off of what we bring to the table. It's based off of what you have done. And so, Lord, we take this together. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done. All that you continue to do. That our lives are a proclamation of your goodness, mercy, and compassion. And that every aspect of what we say and what we do is to bring glory to you. Lord, I pray that you quicken our hearts and convict us of the areas that we need to change. That we will not simply be consumers, but we will walk as you walked. That every promise that you've given us is yes and amen to him who believes, Lord, and that we walk in the fullness thereof. That we are your hands and feet. And Lord, as you sent your disciples into the world, we go... To proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. To preach, to teach, and to heal, Lord. That you would be glorified in everything we do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We've got foundations right after.